In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness had not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is, who is himself God and is the closest relation, in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. As you take your Bible, I want to alarm you. This week I found myself reading a very violent but pers perceptive short story. It's on the screen. Short's uh, story focuses on an escaped convict called the Misfit. The Misfit had captured a family in the woods and he needs their car. He's there with a gun in his pocket and there's some awful henchmen that don't mind doing people harm. <coughs> one by one he picks off the family with their revolver, takes them into the woods and kills them. As this is going on, the uh, misfit is talking to the matriarch of the family, the grandma. And there's a dialogue about the uh, human condition and the human heart. I can tell you're a good man, she says, as she pleads for her life. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't harm people. I can tell you're a good man. Now, just before the story ends, and I'll leave some mystery to it, he says to her, hey, there are no good and bad people. Instead, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there is nothing to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there is nothing to do but to enjoy the few minutes you have left by killing someone or burning down his house or doing some meanness. And there is hardly no pleasure to that. 
Now there is a profoundity to what the misfit is saying in this story of Flannery O'Connor called A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's a brutal, moving, scary, violent story. But did you hear what the misfit is saying? It's something very profound. If there's no Jesus Christ, if there's no God, then you can do whatever you want. If it's taking someone's life or burning down a house, choose your poison, choose your pleasure. If it feels good, do it and so on. Who's to say what's good and who's to say what's right or wrong? Do those, do those uh, high ideals even exist? On the other hand, he also says if Jesus is who he says he was, then if we're of our right mind, we need to throw away everything and do exactly as he says and follow him. The misfit was right. Our lives hinge on the question that John addresses in his gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? We need nothing more than to see, to sense his glory. Who is Jesus? And he answers the question from his very first chapter of his gospel. The misfit was right. Our lives hinge on the question, who is Jesus? And how you answer that question determines how you live, does it not? We've learned a lot already from the first four sentences from John 1 that I'd love to have on your lap. The Word is God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And we learned last week, last week two things. Jesus, who is the Word of God, verse 14 of John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling upon us. But from the first four sentences we learn, the Word was with God in the beginning. He, he is the meaning of life. That's what that big word, word, means to Greek and Jewish ears. We explored that last week. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But also, not only is the Word the meaning of life, he's also the author of life. He was with God in the beginning. Everything exists because of him. Nothing exists without him. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And notice verse 4. We just touched on this last week. In him is life. Verse 4, verse four again, in him is light. If we want to know who God is, we need to look at Jesus. We need to study him. We need to listen to him. There's nothing more important. Our whole lives hinge on the question of who is Jesus Christ? Who is this word who became flesh and dwelt among us? This week, I want us to look at verse 11, 12, 13 more closely. 11, 12 and verse 13 more closely. Three news uh, rooted. This is for you. For you. New life new birth, new rights. New life, new birth, new rights. They're all there in 11, 12, and 13. Number one, new life. Look down with me, please, at sentence five, sentence 10, and sentence 11. As we summarize these three sentences, we see the condition of the human heart. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 10, sentence 10, the word, just summarizing, the world did not recognize him, the word. Verse 11, he, Jesus, the word, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Here's the central problem that dominates why John is writing the gospel, the reason behind the author's pen. 
the reason behind the whole gospel story and the need of God to send light in his mercy and as his rescue plan into a dark world. Jesus comes to God's people, the Jews primarily in the Old Testament, and the Jewish people disown, ignore, don't understand and want to destroy Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, because, verse 5, the light has come into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 10, they didn't recognize him. Verse 11, they did not receive him. That's the condition of the human heart. We prefer darkness to light. If you want to watch something on the internet that you should not be watching, it's a lot easier to watch it when you're alone. It's a lot easier to watch it when it's dark. You might even turn the light out to make it easier. And behind that is this deep principle in the human heart. Behind these uh, 18 sentences is Genesis chapter 1, projected large in the heart of everyone who's ever read the first chapter of the Bible. In the first chapter of the Bible, there is darkness and then God speaks and immediately with a word of authority, creativity, power and command, there is light. There is chaos and nothingness and then there is order and beauty. There is light and darkness. There is moon and there is the sun. There is humanity as the pinnacle of creation that corresponds with verse 14 of this marvelous introduction to John's gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the pinnacle of the new creation just as Adam, the first Adam, was the pinnacle of the first creation. And in light there is now, or rather in darkness there is now light. Where there's chaos, there's now order. Where there's just water, there's now land. There, where there's nothing crawling or creeping, there's now creepy crawly things that make you go screaming uh, as if your wor- life is going to end if you're a five-year-old living in our house, spiders and the rest of it. We prefer darkness to light, don't we? But here we have in this uh, orderliness something that gives a break to our day. Darkness is a gift, the gift of sleep from Genesis chapter 1. There's an orderliness for the days that are made. Menacingness is nothing in Genesis chapter 1. But, but by the time John comes along and writes the beginning of his gospel, the prologue, the introduction, introducing these huge themes throughout his gospel, darkness is not just a break in our week a break in our daytime for the nighttime economy to exist, for people to put their head upon the pillow earlier and earlier. I feel that I should just be uh, some sort of nocturnal animal from about November through about March. It's, I would just love it to be a hobbit of some description. But there's now a menacingness to dark that there wasn't in the beginning. Darkness in John's economy, in John's vocabulary, means something different than it did in Genesis chapter 1. It now appears to oppose the light rather than just divide and order time. Darkness in John's vocabulary has a different, more substantial, significant meaning. But notice verse 5. The darkness is uh, broken up by the light and the darkness cannot defeat or overcome the light. And we see that in John chapter 9 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, as he speaks to a man who is born blind. Now let me talk to you about dead people. I'm reading a book about a, uh, a brain surgeon at the moment, but on the screen you can see now something that you see if you've ever gone into a morgue. If you've gone into a morgue that some of you do professionally, some of you tragically have had to do that personally, often there is a name tag on someone's toe. If you have to identify someone who's died recently, that is the most painful thing imaginable. 
But someone who is designated dead means they don't respond anymore to stimuli. You might prick their toe and there's no sensation there. There's no movement. They no longer grow. There's no longer sensitivity in their being. And what the Bible tells us against the backdrop of new life is that actually each one of us outside of Jesus Christ is spiritually dead. We are all very much physically alive. We can enjoy a super second half of football last night as Argentina just beat Australia. You might enjoy a glass of wine. You might enjoy a trip up to London or sitting on the train as a a strike. You might enjoy the reality of putting baubles on a Christmas tree and looking forward to something that you can eat when you get home. But because of our sin, God can't come into our lives unless he rejuvenates us and makes us spiritually alive. We're very much alive, but we're spiritually very much dead. These great truths from the Bible, the truths of God's truth in a deaf world, of God's truth about sinfulness of our hearts and the death of Christ and the significance of that. When we are very much alive but spiritually dead, we're not interested in that detail. We're not interested in that reality. We find it uninteresting. We find it wrong or offensive. That's your truth. Here's mine. That's what goes on in our hearts when we're very much alive but we're spiritually dead. We might say, I believe it, but I don't want to live my life under its authority. There's no joy. There's no sight. But many people in this room know that I was once like that. I was much blind. I was much once deaf. I was much spiritually dead. But now God has implanted his spiritual life into my human heart. And so now when I hear about the death of Christ, I'm saying, tell me more. I think I understand it, but I long to know it more. I think I understand something about the truth of the Bible, but I long to understand the person of Jesus more intimately and closely. In comes the truth, and it's as if I've never seen anything of the beauty of God's world before. It's as if you need a prescription on your glasses to see properly, and then you receive it. It's as if you see something in ultra-high definition when you just had analog beforehand. I've heard this before, But now the truth of the gospel thrills me. I've heard it before, but now the person of Jesus comforts me. I've heard it before, but now the reality of the gospel strengthens me with the great struggles that I have in my life. Why didn't I see this before? Why didn't I know it before? Well, you did. You just didn't live under its authority. You did, but actually you were alive. But actually you were spiritually dead. You were a dead person walking around. Dead people don't see things. Dead people can't hear things. They don't respond when you call their name, when all you want to hear is their voice, but they they don't answer back. Dead people don't know they're dead. And the great truth of the Bible says we don't understand because darkness has come into our hearts and into our world. It's a spiritual word. When John uses the word darkness, it's not just a period in our calendar or in our day. The Bible says you're not just sick. You don't just need a doctor. The Bible says you're not just hurting. You don't just need help. The Bible says we're dead. You're dead and you're deaf and you cannot see you're blind. And it's not talking about human characteristics. It's talking spiritually to say there's a spiritual reality that until God breaks into you, you will never be able to sense and understand and enjoy the person of Jesus Christ. It needs outside life coming into a dead heart. 
because there's darkness and we enjoy it and we don't understand verse 5 the person of Jesus verse 10 we'd rather be in our darkness and we would rather reject the loving rule of God and live our own autonomous lives that's verse 10 and repeated in verse 11 as well and that's why I read Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 because the greatest gift we need to receive this Christmas and every Christmas is the person of Jesus Christ who was sent from heaven to earth on the only rescue mission that really counts. We need Jesus to make us spiritually alive, to stop us being walking dead people. We need to be like Pinocchio. You know the story of Pinocchio? This, this wooden character that comes alive. It's be, just been remade. It's coming out soon, I believe, if not already. But uh, the puppet becomes a real boy in the story. I always found the story a bit creepy, but that's my own issues. But that's just exactly what happens when you become a Christian. When someone becomes a Christian, they're already alive, but then they become spiritually alive. They become spiritually alive. There's a freshness. There's a joy. Not just a skip in the step. It's not a kind of a, 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 a new reality where you don't remember the past. But there is a, a new sensation, an ultra high definition, a, a better quality of sound, and more attention to beauty and detail. Because this is my father's world. And you live a different life with different priorities. You're spiritually born again. You don't just need to be physically born. You need to be born again. That's what the Bible says, and that's behind verse 12 and verse 13 that we need to think about now. We're, we're dead outside of Christ. In Christ, we're spiritually alive, and he's in the business of making new people, not better people, a whole new category of people. Analog to high definition. It's about new birth. It's also about new life, number two. It's about new life. Look at verse 12 and 13 more closely now. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, but born of God. It literally says children not born of blood, but born of God. Now, John says, I want to say this as clearly as I can to you as he writes. I'm sure he was thinking that. He says, I'm not talking about the first type of bloody birth. I'm not talking about human birth here. And how can I, how can I say that to you? Well, I'm going to use the negative to make the positive as he does throughout the gospel. Look at verse 12 and 13 again. This is what I don't mean, verse 13. Not natural descent, not human decision or a husband's will, but... See, negative, 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 positive. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a new category of existence with a new spiritual, a new heavenly father. We're talking about an implantation of the very nature of God in a human heart. It is like a heart transplant that you might see, but it's, it's the nature of God by the spirit of God, taking the promises of God, making you into the person that God would have you be when you become a Christian. Now, we all have those times in our life, don't we, when you realize your limitations, when you realize that we need help, when we realize our neediness, when we say, I need to change. I can't go on like this. I watched a documentary this week about Christy McVie, who played keyboards in Fleetwood Mac. For her, the bottom was the bottom of a bottle. 
It was lots of drugs involved in her musical excellence as well back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. She's just recently died, sadly. But for all of us, we have that point in our life when we say, this far and no further. Stephen Fry had it as well when he found himself in prison and he turned his life around. What is it for you when you say, I need to turn over a new leaf? I can't live like this anymore. Often it's at New Year's resolution time that lasts a few days. You might say, I need to get religious. You might say, I need to reform my life and change my priorities and spending habits. But then comes the Bible that's already said you're spiritually dead, deaf, dumb, and blind. You're like a sheep that's gone astray. You do not need to turn over a new leaf. You need a new root. You don't need to turn over a new leaf or a new page. You need a new foundation to live upon. You need a new heart. Jesus says, I'm not out to make people better. I'm out to make people new. Look at verse 4. In him is life. Verse 4, in him is light. It's new appetites, new taste buds, new sensitivities. Because you were dead, but now you're alive. Now you're alive. I remember the 17th of July this year vividly. It was warm. Remember those days when it was really warm? Five people got baptized outside in the paddling pool that I bought from Amazon. Here now water that's very close to Peckham Spring, but it's Thames water. And they praised God for what they'd done in their lives. They praised God that they were dead, but now they've been raised to life in the person of Jesus Christ. And it was thrilling they from all backgrounds, all ages and stages of life, lots of different stories, but they testified to the power of God who makes dead people alive. And behind these verses that talk about life and darkness and death and light is the whole history of Israel behind sentence 5, 10 and 11. Behind these verses is the paradox of God's people that dominates the whole Bible. Jesus is sent to rescue God's people. He's the Messiah who all of the Old Testament pretend, uh, prepared the appetites and the earbuds for. And that when he came to God's people, when Jesus Christ the Messiah came, what did they do? They say, we prefer darkness to light. We'd rather ex extinguish the light of the world. We'd rather have him hanging on a, on a cross. And so verse 16 says, although the law came at Sinai to God's people through Moses, they turned their back on the God of the Bible. And so what's needed, that this great signpost of God's word in the law that we have in the Old Testament, sentence 16, they need fresh grace. Grace upon grace is needed. They've already received grace through God's law, pointing them in the right direction, but they need someone full of grace and truth to come only through Jesus, through God's Son. And the great news is from verse 12, Therefore, anyone who receives Jesus, who, who believes in his name, can be called a child of God. His own people may have rejected him as the Jews, the vast majority of them, turned their back on Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the world. But to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You don't have to be an ethnic Jewish person to be a Christian. You don't have to be born into a particular time or a family. You need to believe in his name, the name of Jesus. And God wants all people 
who trust in Jesus to be saved, and they will be. People from anywhere and everywhere. It's a new way to be saved as the good news of Jesus is spread throughout the world. But actually, it's an old way that people have always been saved through faith in the one who would come as a predictive faith. And now it's looking backwards on the one who came, whose name is Jesus. Anyone can become a child of God. Anyone. It's this great theme of Israel, my firstborn son, from the book of Exodus, from Deuteronomy chapter 14. Here is my firstborn son. It's, it's the, the people of God, the Israel of God from the book of Galatians. Not by blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but anyone, man, woman, boy, girl. Verse 13, that is born of God. It's for everyone. It's from God. It's for the world in the person of Jesus Christ. It's fulfillment of the purpose of Israel, even though many of Israel rejected Jesus. Now, how do you know if you've been born again? Well, think about an elephant rooted. This is for you. Think about an elephant living in your house. Now, if you uh, walked home and someone somehow had stolen, please don't do this. Unless you're a university student, you do all sorts of silly things. But please don't do this. Imagine someone stole an elephant from London Zoo, managed to get it in through your front door, pushing it in. Let's imagine that scene. And you get home and there's an elephant in your house. It's fair to say because of the size of the elephant, your house would be reorganized and restructured quite quickly. There may be the odd deposit here or there that you weren't expecting either. But you know what I mean? When an elephant is in your house, because of the magnitude of the animal, the beast, that's uh, just so powerful and strong and so cumbersome, your whole house will be destroyed. No part of your house, they're now upstairs, they're knocking over stuff, they're smashing stuff. It's an absolute disaster zone. That's what would happen if an elephant was living in your house. And then they would need to be fed. Imagine your shopping bill this week as you had to look after them. Now, friends, they would move the furniture around. They would cause destruction. This is how you know if you're a Christian. You do not have an elephant in your house, but you have God living in your heart. And because of the magnitude of the elephant destroying and impacting your house, what about the magnitude of this being, the person, Jesus Christ, who is the author of life, the creator of life, the sustainer of life, and yet very often we want to just Allow him one room in our house or in our heart, and the rest is off limits. But respectfully, sticking with the illustration, Jesus is an elephant, but he's so much greater than the elephant. There's no part of our heart or house that Jesus does not deserve to be in and that Jesus will not affect. Have you been radically changed by the person of Jesus? who continually rearranges the furniture. It's continually happening. Not destroying, but creating new affections, reordering your heart's loves, asking you to throw away some bad habits that you shouldn't be doing anymore. Are you still surprised at how God is challenging you as he lives in your heart and in your home? I never knew I could do that before. I never knew that Jesus was that great before. I never knew that he was that lovely before. I need to put some things in place, and so on. You cannot, you must not say that God is in your home or in your heart and then ask an elephant to stay in the corner. You can have that part of my life, 
but stay off my wallet. You can have that part of my life, but, but please, I want to do that. Jesus affects everything for the better. New life, new birth, new rights, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. To become children of God. Now this sentence is so rich, but here are three things that I want to remind you of. When you become a Christian, when you've been born again, you have new rights. And I want to ask you, Christian friend, have you forgotten them? Are you living in light of them? Are you standing on these great truths? Let me show you three. There are many more, but here are three. Are you living on the basis of these rights? Number one, intimate access. Intimate access. Uh, imagine your father, this might be true for some of you, is a four-star general in the army. They're used to giving orders. They're used to telling people off and dressing down. They do a bit of publicity work. They have a, a front face that a hair is never out of place. They always raise their voice and people say, how high shall I jump? How far shall I go? And so on. But they're your dad. And when they get home, the uniform comes off and they're down on the rug messing around with you as a youngster. What right have you got to mess around with a four-star general? Because their generalness is enveloped, is cloaked in the character of a father. You don't know them as general, you know them as dad. What a privilege you have to mess around, to enjoy the cooking, to enjoy the, the sound of the voice of a four-star general who doesn't give you orders, but who calls you son or daughter. You get the analogy, I trust. You have access to the very center of the universe. You can call the God of all things your father. You can call him daddy. You can speak to him whenever you want. You can enjoy his company 24-7. Are you enjoying the privilege? Are you enjoying his character? Has he heard the sound of your voice? Because dads love to hear the voice of their children. That's number one. It's intimate access to the heavens and to the person of God. Here's the second thing. The Bible tells us sometimes that... Uh, or rather friends tell us sometimes that, that there is no difference between a, a biological child and an adopted child. The Bible describes the reality that anyone by faith who believes in the name of Jesus can become a child of God, verse 12, verse 13. And there's a reality, is there not, in, in a home where adoption happens, that you can't tell the difference between a biological child and, and an adopted child. Parents' hearts know no difference between a biological child and an adopted child. They love them just the same. Now, if that's true of an earthly family, is it not true in a far greater degree from a heavenly father who says, you are my child. You're adopted into my family. And if that's true from that perspective, you can say to yourself and to your own heart with all its doubts and sadnesses, I may not be loved very much on earth, but my father in heaven loves me. My Father in heaven has chosen me. My Father in heaven has adopted me. My Father in heaven knows the depths of my heart but loves me the same. My Father loves me more than I love myself. My Father wants greater things for me than I can never know. I cannot see what my Father is doing in my life at this time, but I trust him. Do you trust your Father that he wants greater things for you than you even want for yourself? 
Do you live on that platform, on that security? That's huge, powerful living if you bring that truth to bear on your own heart. Here's the third thing. Here's a picture of a crown. It's inheritance. It's, it's access and it's adoption and, and you're an heir. Have you forgotten that recently? Who you are? The Bible tells you that you are an heir in Christ, son or daughter of the king. And that means everything the king owns one day will all be yours. Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 18, someday, someday when, when the future is revealed in Jesus, all this will be yours. All the suffering will make sense. All the tears will be a distant memory. The entire world, all of nature is going to a certain perspective a certain destination it will be glorious and it will be great and it will be good and Jesus will be at the very center on that day every blade of grass will be more clear every sound will be more more audible the beauty will be almost unbearable and you'll bow down and worship the one who made it on that day your body will be made new that will be your glorious inheritance You've been adopted, been chosen. You're an heir of the king. That's your future and it's certain and secure. So why are you worried about life? Why are you worried about who notices you or who doesn't? Why are you worried about what people say when you speak? Why are you worried about how you measure up to a standard that you make? Why is it that you're living as if you're clinging to a, clinging to a life raft that kind of bobs up and down rather than a sure foundation that is the person of Jesus Christ. Here's a bedrock. Here's something you can live your life upon. Here's something solid for your heart to get its teeth into, mixing my metaphors. So Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So what does Paul say you should be doing, Christian friend? He looks around and he says, have you applied the truth of your sonship to your heart? Have you chewed, meditated upon your inheritance that you have in Christ? Have you reminded yourself that you have a Father in heaven who's in charge of all history and he does all things well? What do you do when you get depressed? Do you jog? There's limited value to that, I'm told. I don't do it. What do you do when you get depressed? Is it Netflix? Is it chocolate? Is it wine? Is it something different? Do you play the piano? All those things have a place. But they're all temporary. And what we need to do, Christian friends, is to think through the implications of our sonship with sons and daughters of the king. Verse 12. For those who believe in his name. If you believe, non-Christian friend, that Jesus died in your place, that he rose again, that he ascended to the right hand of his father, you stand on the basis of that and you say, Father, accept me because of him. <laughs> Who are you with? I'm with him. And because of his record, I stand in his stead. And he stands in my stead. Accept me because of him, not me. It's the wonderful transaction of the gospel. It's the greatest gift you can ever receive. Accept me, Father, because of his perfect record. I'm with him. And so let me in. If you don't do that, there's no comfort. You'll be on the ground eating grubs, as it were. You still remain spiritually dead, but in him is new life. There's new birth. There's new rights. And there's a feast that's ready that he's laid before you in heaven. It's full of good things. Because verse 5 is true. The light shines in the darkness. 
but the darkness has not understood it and we won't left to ourselves but God in his kindness has sent his spirit to open hearts and ears and to give us new affections let's pray that he'll do that this morning